Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Leading, and I am absolutely thrilled with the guest in front of me right here in this rather splendid studio in London. Rory is not with us, but then again, given that the person that I have in the studio with me, I don't know if Rory would even know who you were, Mike. I mean, uh, <laughs> he's, he's fair to say he's not the biggest sports fan in the world, okay? So I've given you two clues, people. He's a sports guy, and his name's Michael, and I'll fill in the gaps. He shares a name, if I may just very briefly stay on politics, he shares a surname with the worst prime minister this country has <laughs> ever had. Welcome, Michael Johnson. Good to be here. Good to be here. Good to see you. And as Rory would say, for those who haven't been following the Michael Johnson story as closely as Alistair has, Michael is without doubt one of the greatest athletes ever. Held the 200 meter and 400 meter records for a very, very, very long time. But I want to start off, Michael, by talking about something that you've kind of explored a lot, and that is the role of sport in political social change. One of the kind of key figures in the company that does this podcast is Gary Lineker, former footballer, who's got quite a political voice. He's always been told, stick to sport, Mm. stick to football. How do you feel when people say to athletes, stick to running, stick to golf, stick to whatever it might be? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, What I say... And how I feel is it would be very, very convenient, you know, if we all could just stick to sport. I'd love to just stick to sport, but I can't. And most of us as athletes, we can't because the issues are too important. And we have a platform that is too valuable to not be used for these issues. I mean, certainly in America, for sure, maybe in other places as well. It's a war. It's, it's like a Cold War that we're in right now where 
we've made significant progress, no doubt about that, in terms of equality. But I think a lot of us have sort of woken up to, you know, the fact that we haven't made as much progress as we thought we had. And that has become very real and very um, clear to us. And it's become clear to everyone. And it's become clear to the other side that we are now aware <laughs> that we aren't as equal as we thought we were. Who do you see as the other side? The other side are conservatives in America who truly do want to stop the progress. They don't want to see the progress. They're not comfortable with progress. They don't want you to be equal with them. Right. They don't want it. Well, there, there's a political power part of this where they just don't want to give up their power. Mm. And then there's a social component of it, just so the normal rank and file people who are not the politicians who don't want to give up their privilege. And look, at the end of the day, you probably are going to have to give up some privilege in order for everyone to be equal. I don't think there's another solution. So people are fighting to keep their privilege on the one side and people on the other side were fighting for equality. If you were still an athlete now and you was, let's say, won a gold medal at the Olympics, as you've done several times before, would you take the knee as, at a medal ceremony? Would you raise your fist in the way that Smith and Carlos did in Mexico City? Yeah, it's a good question. I would today, but in the 90s, when I was competing, and look, we still had issues then. I mean, Smith and Carlos raised their fist in 68. Mm. By the 90s, you know. Progress was made. Progress, a, a tremendous amount of progress was made, but we still had issues, and we knew we still had issues. I don't know that I would have done it. I mean, it's a huge risk. And the environment at that time, you know, from a sponsorship standpoint, mm. was not very tolerant of that sort of thing. So, you know, and it's easy for me. I'm just, I just say that because I'm conscious of the fact that you know I'm, I'm retired. It's yeah. easy for me to say, absolutely, hell yeah, I'd, I'd take the knee and I'd, I'd raise my fist, you know. But these athletes today that are out there competing, they get death threats. I've gotten death threats, you know, just for supporting some of these athletes, mm. you know. So they get death threats. I think that now it's easier now because there's strength in numbers. And when you have people like... LeBron James. I mean, globally, you have Lewis Hamilton. You have people like that who are using their platform, fighting for equality, and um, it makes it easier for others, you know, you to, to jump on. I mean, John Carlos, his brothers got discharged from Vietnam because of what he did. Yeah. Tommy Smith's brothers got kicked off their teams back home because of what he did. Carlos's wife later killed herself. Yep. And, um, you know, all sorts of factors, no doubt, but I wonder whether that might have played into that as well. So you can see why people would be worried. Mm. And and those are the sorts of things that I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people who would wish that, you know, every athlete use their platform don't understand that the decision to use that platform is not one to be taken lightly. So I applaud all of the athletes who who, who are because it's a very difficult decision and, and there's about, a lot of uncertainty. And what about the athletes who don't? Do you, do you feel athletes have a responsibility or is that asking too much? My position has changed on that. Had you asked me that before 2021, you know, 2020, George Floyd, mm. this whole period that we're in now, I would have said, and I, and I always did say, look, that's that's up to each athlete, you know. To make that decision for themselves, and and I will respect whatever their decision is. Um, but once you're in a war, and we are now, and 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 I think most of the athletes know it. Um, 
it's it's very evident to everyone. It's very clear to everyone. And you have some of the biggest names in sport going out there using their platform. You have large corporations getting behind them and supporting them and using their platform for good. And some of the athletes decide, well, I just don't want to take the risk or I just don't want to take any risk at all. Yeah, I have a problem with that. Mm. But you're talking about a war. You're calling it a war. Mm. I mean, people get killed in wars. Yeah. Is there not a danger that the rhetoric surrounding this Mm. kind of leads to that? And a lot of people, you're talking about young men and Mm. women Mm -hmm. who will be scared Mm. when they hear somebody like you that they no doubt look up to, respect, see as a sort of great figure in athletics history. Mm. And they think, well, he's talking about war. Why? I'm not a soldier. I'm a runner. Yeah, well... (laughs) You, sometimes you need to be a soldier. I mean, this is serious. I mean, we talk about, we talk about culture war. You know, we talk about, you know, social war. Look, this is what it is. It's a battle. You can call it, you can call it a war. You can call it a battle. We hear that all of the time. It's a battle for the soul of the country. Mm. It is. It's, 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 it is that serious. It absolutely is that serious. And how important is it that the white athletes, get engaged and get involved as well. Can't just be left to the black guys, can it? Yeah, it is important, and they are. I mean, because this is this is not just about black people. This is about women. Mm-hmm. This is about the LGBTQ community. It's about, you know, brown people, immigrants. It's about all of these marginalized groups. That's what it's about. And so, and, and I was, after George Floyd, I, I was blown away seeing the variety of different people out there every day, mostly young people, but older people as well. But I was blown away by the variety of different people, white people, black people, immigrants, you name it, out there marching because they knew and they could see it. This is not right. Mm. This is not right. And all they're wanting, everyone wants is for in America, just do what you say. Mm. You say we're all equal. Put it all on paper. Mm. You know, do what you put on paper. You said that we're all equal. Do it. Act on it. And 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 everyone realizes that, you know, it's uh the it's, we see the hypocrisy and um, and people want fairness, they want equality, so they're out there marching. So you're here in London, you've just been in Dublin, you're heading back to the States. When you say it's a war, what does that feel like for you as a as a pretty well known black guy? How does that affect you when you're there? It feels like it's very frustrating because I think we get, we even myself, we sort of get desensitized to it sometimes when another black person is killed by the police. You know, you just kind of, you know, I find myself some days, you know, just scrolling on social media or just watching the news and, ah, you know, damn, you know, oh, well. Mm. Or, hey, we have an issue with, you know, guns and mass murders. It's not a black issue. It's just a people issue that lives are being lost because, again, we're in this situation where one side sees a benefit to allowing people to have as many guns as they want. And the other side, you know, we all see that that's a problem. Lives are being lost and for no good reason. So we get desensitized to it. And that's uh, it, it's you get really sometimes uh, a bit down about it. You know, but then you have to just kind of, you know, keep keep rolling and, and keep going. How big a problem has the polarization in politics itself been, particularly with the arrival of Trump on the scene? It's unbelievable. There is not a single issue or thing, something just benign, 
becomes a political polarizing issue. Anything. I mean, that's where we are. There's no trust. There's no dialogue between the two sides. It looks like, and this is the shame of it, it looks like and it feels like a sporting event. I have my team, you have your team. And everybody's waking up every day hoping to see that their team scored some points today on the other side and didn't get any points scored on us today. That's it. You take this issue with these classified documents. So the whole Trump classified documents issue was one in which he had a bunch of documents that he said, these are mine. <laughs> you know, they're not yours. They're not don't belong to the government. First, he said he didn't have them. So they raid his house and they get the documents. Then Biden finds some documents at his house and says, hey, I found some documents at my house coming clean. Here they are. At that point, we should have all been asking the question. The question I was asking, who the hell is responsible for these documents that doesn't even know where they are? If they're so important to national security, who's responsible for this? this that's not the topic. Mm. The topic is all about, even from the, the left, it's... They're as bad as each other. Yeah. It's like, okay, you know, we got to defend our guy. You know, this isn't the same situation as mm. Trump's situation. And then the Trump people are saying, or the right wing people are saying, see, your guy's got some documents too. And it's like, that's what we're talking about? Mm. And then Pence comes up. I got some documents. What does Fox News say? Mike Pence found some documents at his house as opposed to when it was Biden, documents found at Biden's house. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's just, come on, yeah. you know? So we're not in this issue. You could say the real problem then that we have with regards to these classified documents is there's obviously no system to safeguard them. That's the problem, but nobody's talking about that mm. because we're so focused on scoring points on each other. And this so this, po this podcast is called Leading, and it's about leadership. What's your analysis of the way Biden's trying to lead through this quagmire of polarization and populism yeah i don't know you know i i it's some days i think yeah it's working i see what you're doing you know because there's some really important issues that that need to be uh, you know governed and taken care of that are you know imminent that are you know immediate and right now as opposed to you know some of these social issues and uh, polarization that's going to take some time to unravel that and so so I, I get it i think a lot of people on the left kind of want him to do more i think a lot of them you know don't want him to continue the i reach across the aisle you know rhetoric i don't know um this is where it gets you know above my my level of expertise we'll see um it'll be interesting to see if he decides to to run again i was talking to a mutual friend of ours yesterday, Seb Coe, who, of course, post-sport did go into politics and now mm. is kind of in sports politics. Have you never thought yourself about a political career? No. I never. was I was talking, I was in South Africa once speaking with your former boss. We were having dinner, Tony, and I said, I just don't see how anybody could do that. <laughs> he says, because he said the same thing, you should go into politics. I was like, I don't see how anybody could do that. I just, I, I couldn't. because. And he explained, you know, sort of, hey, you know, here's how it works. And, you know, yeah, you got to give up some things to get some things and you might have to, you know, and that's just kind of the way it works. And I was like, yeah, that doesn't sound like me. There's no you. You know, you got to go straight I've, to the line. I've, I've always been intrigued with with business. Mm. And so when I, I always knew when I finished my, my athletic career, I would be an entrepreneur. I would build companies. And it's very straightforward, you know, it's very straightforward. And that's what I like, mm. you know, if I know what the challenge is. And I know it's required of me to actually, I don't care how big it is, but I know kind of it's pretty straightforward. Right, but the challenge at the moment for everybody, as you were saying, is 
your country, and these are forces that are happening right around the democratic world, is being torn apart. Yeah. So that's the challenge. Right. So what's, what's your role within that? So, so the thing is, is with business, I can figure out, given the challenge, what's required to overcome the challenge. In politics, yeah, I, I, I would have no clue. <laughs> I think you'd be better than you think. I, don't, I would have no clue as to, you know, what the, uh, it, it, and it changes. Mm. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very challenging. I, I applaud the people who take it on mm. with an earnest intention to make change. I, I applaud them. You, you did a, a podcast series called Defiance, which was really about the history of protest in, in sport. And you had a, in the trailer, you had this great quote. History almost always proves that the defiant ones are right. Do you think we've got enough defiance at the moment? Hmm. I hate to keep, you know, sort of going on the, you know, sides thing because it is polarizing in itself, but I, there's no other way to put this. I think we do on our side because what we're trying to do is fight for, look, change happens. Change happens. And on their side, they're tolerating it and encouraging it and enabling it. Yeah, there's, there's defiance on that side as well, um, but it is, it's different. It's, um, how would I put it? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. You, as you're sitting there thinking, are you thinking that whatever you say is just going to add to the polarization? No, no. I'm just thinking, you know, you know, I, I, it's, I never thought about it that way. You know, defiance can be, you know, for good mm. or it can be, you know, for for bad right so then you know, yeah so the bad guys can be defiant defiantly racist yeah they defiantly can be homophobic. exactly and i think that yeah and they're being brazen now in it because of trump uh, you know if you can get all the way up to the presidency you know the most powerful man in the world being openly racist and abrasive and denigrating people and you know then hell I should be able to do it too, you know? Can you respect, we, we have this motto on the podcast, disagree agreeably. Can you respect somebody who votes for somebody like Trump the second time? I would like to see a scenario where, because I, I wouldn't disrespect that person just on the surface, you know, sort of premise that, well, you voted for Trump and I don't like him. Because right. I think that's a part of the problem, mm -hmm. you know? I wouldn't be able to respect that person because of their reasons in most cases. So I would like to hear a reason mm. someone votes for Trump. Well, we just disagree. So no, mm. you know, I, I still respect you, but we just disagree. I'm sure there probably is one. It might, well, it might just be they hate the other guy more. That's a lot of it, I think. But then my question would be, but which one is more dangerous to society? Which one is more dangerous to our country? And, you know, because there are those people who, don't vote. Too many of them. Yeah, too many of them that don't vote. And, but, but some actively don't vote. Some people, it's, you know, access to voting. It's, you know, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Some people are registered. You know, you'll have people, I'm a registered Republican, but Donald Trump, I just can't see myself voting for him. He's distasteful. I think he's dangerous, but I'm not going to vote mm. for Biden. I mean, I had, I spoke at, at universities, uh, help trying to help Hillary Clinton get, get elected back in 2016. And, you know, the young people were saying, you know, I don't like you, the candidate. And they thought that they should be able to have the perfect candidate in order to vote. And I was trying to explain then. And I saw it happening then that this generation, they believe that they are, they're deserving of the, the perfect candidate mm -hmm. and, uh, and not realizing that, you know, if you don't vote, that could be a vote for the worst candidate. You just get to pick the, the best. Mm -hmm. of the the worst if that's the way you look at it but you got to pick now what about the one of one of the most um 
polarizing issues, certainly here, and I'm, I'm guessing it's the same in the, in the US at the moment, is, is the whole issue of gender, transgender. And of course, I think it's particularly difficult in sport. So first on that specifically, but then maybe more generally, what do you see as the kind of really key issues for your sport at the moment? Because it's going through a pretty rough time, I'd say. It is going through a rough time. Here's my position on that. We live in a, in a time where most people look at things very binary. This is right, this is wrong. And if this is right, that means the other side has to be wrong. And people want things very quickly. I want solutions quickly. I want everything really fast. And I expect everything to be able to be distilled down into a very simple narrative. And boom, that's all I got time for. Just give me the headline. So they also expect that there aren't any really complex problems. All of the problems are very simple. That's not true. This is an extremely complex problem. And there's no easy solution. Whatever the solution is at the end of the day, whatever it's going to be, it's not going to satisfy everybody. There is no solution that's going to make everybody happy. This is extremely complex. I don't have the answer. I'm extremely pleased that I'm not the one that has to try to come up with the answer because it is a very difficult situation. And um, yeah, there there is no simple answer. I mean, the, the answer that I think the authorities and people like Seb are promoting is this this idea that it's the so-called DSD, the kind of hidden mm. testes, mm. people like Casta Semenya, mm. or it's transgender, that it's all about keeping the testosterone levels mm-hmm. below, I think it's 2.5. Does that feel to you like the kind of right approach, or do you not even want to have a view on that because you think it's so complicated? It's not that I don't want to have a view. I would love to have a view, but I don't because... I just don't think that there's an easy solution, you know, just saying, hey, you know what, we're going to cap it here. Mm. You know, it's based on what? Mm. You know, I mean, we, we're at a, at a point where the change is happening so quickly and two things can be right at the same time. And that's a problem that most people don't believe that anymore, but uh, just don't have that perspective. But two things can be right at the same time. You know, everyone deserves access to sport. Yeah. And also at the same time, you got to try to make sure that it's fair because sport is based on fairness. Mm. How you do that is going to be extremely complex. And, you know, and, and right now you have the situation with regard to, you know, these different levels where a lot of the complexity comes out when you look at some of the court cases, the Castro-Semenya court case. World Athletics did a lot of work that the Court for Arbitration of Sport asked them to do if they were going to actually set these standards. And um, when the scientific studies come back, you look at the court case and you see that, you know, there's a lot of holes that can be poked even into the science. Mm. And where it keeps coming back to is interpretation of the science. And, well, are you sure? (laughs) Are you sure? No, no. Who's going to be able to be sure? Can't be sure. And um, and that's a problem because you can't really be sure. So ultimately, someone is going to have to make a decision, whether it's the sports bodies themselves or whether it's the courts, if it gets that far again. Mm-hmm. But somebody's going to have to make a decision and nobody wants to make a decision because they know that the decision is not going to satisfy everyone. And there are loud voices on both sides that will um, they'll they'll come after you. Well, let's take a little break, and then we'll, we'll come back to the far easier subject of, of drugs <laughs> in sport. <laughs> uh, sounds good. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this episode of Leading with uh, Michael Johnson. Uh, how many goals? Olympic four, Worlds eight. Yeah, twelve, twelve goals. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. good. Pretty good. But if you'd been a swimmer, yeah, then I could do all of my events like backwards, <laughs> forwards. I could do a freestyle, and yeah, and get a whole bunch more medals. <laughs> Same event, just do it a different way. <laughs> yeah, not that you're pissed off with that. Hey, man, you know. <laughs> now let's just talk about about drugs. It's hard for every athlete, isn't it? The clean athletes is hard. It wasn't hard for me because I was always winning, so I didn't have to worry about yeah, the no, drug you, were, you were winning, and then every time you won, there's this sort of little, there's a little crowd over there going, "Ah, you can't run that fast with that drug. It's impossible." I mean, I, I mean, look, I, I never let that bother me. I mean, literally, if if your criteria or your judgment for who's on drugs and who's not is based on who's running fast. Mm. I mean, come on. My the objective of our sport is to run fast. Yeah. That's not going to work. You can't. <laughs> you're running too fast. Come on. I mean, but you gave, um, was it the relay? You gave your medal back. Yeah. Because Antonio Pettigrew had admitted cheating later. Yeah. yeah he admitted cheating later. And he later killed himself. And he later committed suicide. And there you go. This is not, this is, again, this is a, another not easy choice. I don't like the idea that people fling around these, you know, accusations that all of the athletes are cheating mm. or that most of them are cheating. Mm. 
I don't think when an athlete makes the decision to cheat that it's that easy. I think it's a very difficult because, look, I remember the moment that I, you know, got my medals and my family's all there. My mother, my father, my brother, my sister, they're so proud. If I knew that something that they didn't know, mm. knew that this isn't really real, I'm really not this good, that would be difficult. And I think that, you know, look, Antonio Pettigrew, sad story. Um, and I was very angry with him after that because I was at that point, I think, eight years into my retirement. And so I was a 13-time Olympic and world champion. Did, and you, I have no, I did you have no sense of him cheating when you, you were athletes together? Yeah, look, so, you know, that's a that's a good question because a lot of people, I think it's another misconception, is that people believe that, if you're in the sport, you're going to know. You're going to know. Mm. It's kind of like saying, you know, we're all in society, so we know who the criminals are. Mm. <laughs> people don't do crimes in the day, you know, in the light. They don't, and they, surely, they certainly don't tell other people. Mm. And in this case, even more so, I'm his competitor. I'm one of his main rivals. He's certainly not going to tell me, Michael, you remember that one time I beat you? He did beat me one time. Remember that one time I beat you? Well, I was really on drugs, so that's the only reason. I, he's not going to tell me that. No. You're not going to know. See, I don't it's, know. That's what's amazing about your sport. And the relay is your competitor and teammate. Yeah, I mean, incredible, and we were competitors like three days. It's always like, you know, by the time yeah. we get to the relay, three <laughs> days earlier, we were bitter rivals, you know, but we miraculously come together for the relay and... But yeah, Antonio Pettigrew's situation, he had, you know, he had a young son. And I think that, you know, his situation was such that he was, he had retired as well. It was well into his retirement, but everyone will remember the Balco drug scandal. He had to testify in a grand jury. um, And at that point, he had to tell the truth and he admitted that he had doped. And I think it was too much for him to now, you know, know, have his family know that, you know, all of these things that they were so proud of him for that, that he had been cheating. And I think it was just too much for him. You sent that, the medal back. And I sent the medal back. I just didn't, you know, I, I have always been, I've always been against drugs. I train. I had training partners. I saw how hard they worked. They weren't at my level, but they were professionals as well. And I mean, one point, you know, we sat around and we counted up all of the U.S. teams those guys would have been on if all of the people who we know because they tested positive had not been in the sport. Those athletes, these are my training partners, they would have been on world championship, Olympic teams. They got cheated out of that. Mm. That's a shame. Mm. I don't know how it feels personally, but I know how it feels. These are some of my best friends. And are you as hardline as Seb is in terms of keeping the Russians out of the sport because they've got this massive industrial doping program? Look, absolutely. And... Seb and I disagree on a lot of things. Well, we're going to come to that. <laughs> but that's the one area. It's at least one area where I think that he has he has led on it. Lots of other sports federations. I've been disappointed in the IOC mm. and, and how they've treated you know that situation. And I think that Seb has been right on the money on that mm. one. And, and I think it's been brave. And I think he's, he's done a, a fantastic job with it. And where do you disagree? We disagree. I mean, I love this sport. You know, this is this is my sport. I love it. And I would love to see it. Um, the athletes, you know, are the athletes struggle as uh, as professionals. And um, I would love to see the sport in a much better position than it is. And I don't think that Seb has been I don't think he's been very good in that particular area. And I don't think that he's been quite as straightforward that, hey, here's, you know, what we really need to do. I think he's he spent a lot of time 
making sure that he looks good. But again, he's he's in deep in the politics the whole time, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, you you, you have to be. You know, I mean, people mm-hmm. will say, you know, Seb's too political. Well, you got to be political to be in that job. Mm-hmm. You know, so I get that. But at the same time, some of the some of the rhetoric, you know, gets a little bit too. Let's not just pat ourselves on the back for what we've done, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. get it done. Mm-hmm. Get it done. Do you think the sport's in a, almost like, not existential, but the, I mean, it's it's not in the place that it should be. And are you, would you be happier if it was just track and you could kind of dispense with some of the field stuff? <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny one. Um, so, you know, going back to your, your the first point you made, the only reason it's not existential is because it's still the number one Olympic sport. If there was no Olympics, there would be no track and field anymore. For years, it kept finding a new bottom. <laughs> you thought, okay, we've hit rock bottom. No, we can go a little bit further down because, and, but it's never going to go away because of the Olympics. Every four years, people love it. Look, Olympic track and field, world championship, championship track and field is amazing. We just had world championships in America last summer. Amazing. Championship track and field is great. Doesn't really need any changes. It's, it's great at the college level, great at high school level, school level. In America, biggest participatory sport in, in America for kids. It's track and field. Yeah, it's track and field. But at the professional level, nobody knows who any of the professional athletes are. The professional level of track and field is dismal. There's, it's just the athletes struggle to make a living. People don't know who they are. And the sport hasn't, and this is one of the things I have a problem with with Seb, is that not being innovative with the sport when it comes to the professional side of it. The sport hasn't changed in forever. It's not fit for these times where, you know, when you look at what people are interested in, you're just not going to find, you're going to struggle to find a person who you can convert in. Not a, not a diehard fan. Diehard fans are fine watching people run the 10,000 meters in 26 minutes, equally watching sprinters run the 100 meters in, you know, 10-7 for the women, you know, and equally shot putters and discus throwers and javelin and jumpers and all of those different things, all arguably different sports because I'm an icon in the sport, okay, as a sprinter. If all of us went out to, say, throw javelins, I probably wouldn't win. You probably would. <laughs> no, I wouldn't beat you, Michael. <laughs> I don't know that I would. I mean, we could just pick anyone in this building. They might be a better javelin thrower than me, but that's my sport, right? There's so many different sports in one. So it's very difficult to market it. It's very difficult to bring new fans into it. If you were to just create a sport <laughs> from scratch today, you wouldn't do it the way this sport has been built. Right. So what would, would you give me three innovations that you think Seb should be doing for the sport? I'm going to give you one okay. concept that he should absolutely be looking at. And that is World Athletics is a federation. Federations... Their job is to govern governance, rules, supporting the member foundations. That's what they're good at. They are not good at marketing and commercialization. Go find a commercial partner. Give them the rights to the Diamond League. Let them then and give them the remit. Here's what you need to do. And and, and it's got to be a commercial for-profit organization. Like the FIA doesn't run Formula One. Mm. Liberty has to to deliver a profit. Eventually, mm. they have to. What Seb, what I would have loved to have seen him do, and would love to see him do, is don't score any own goals with the sport, first of all, by doing silly things that make it look even worse and less professional and less of an attractive um, uh, asset for, for anyone to come in and, and sort of take over. Don't do that. 
first. And then, yeah, go out and try to find that partner that can come in and actually commercialize the sport and create a true professional track and field mm. circuit. So once, you, once you're below the kind of Usain Bolt, Shelly Ann, Fraser Price kind of level, athletes, you say, are financially, most of them are struggling. Yes. Most they of still them have to pay their own expenses, travel around the world. Yeah. So um, the sport limits the number of sponsors you can have on your uniform when you're competing. And the athletes themselves, because the sport television wise isn't very attractive. So it's not, you know, in a consistent time frame and schedule where people can find it. So it's hard to grow a, a fan base for it. So the, the, the television isn't very attractive and doesn't get a lot of viewership. So there's really not much for a sponsor. So the only sponsor options for the athletes is shoe companies. And there's only so much that they have in their budgets because this isn't a recreational sport with a lot of equipment like a tennis or golf where you can monetize. Unless you're a hammer thrower or a javelin. <laughs> javelin throwing is sponsored javelins. You can all be <laughs> the sport. I'm really, I'm really happy that you think I would beat you at athletic sport. I'm really, really, really chuffed about that. I said it was a possibility. <laughs> possibility, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, listen, you had, a, um, you had a, 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 a brush with your own mortality. Was it a full-on stroke or was yeah. it, yeah, it was, yeah. It was so yeah. what was, just talk us through that when you're used to being so fit mm. and so healthy and then suddenly you're kind of thinking yeah. you might die. Yeah, it was a, it was a crazy situation. Four years ago, I was, uh, just finished a, a training session, uh, in my gym at home and, um, started experiencing this tingling in my left arm and I started having a real problem, um, with coordination on my left leg and my left leg. So I almost fell down, hobbled over to a weight bench, sat down, and it's like, this is very strange. Long story short, out of an abundance of caution, we decided, my wife and I decided, I would just go to the emergency room and just see what it is because um, probably nothing. Because, yeah, I mean, I'd always been healthy and and taking good care of myself. You didn't feel your life was in danger at that time? No, I felt like, I mean, and this is the thing, and I, I do a lot of work now, you know, with the uh, UK Stroke Association as well as the American Heart and Stroke Association and try to help people understand, you know, and, and be aware of the signs. And it's very dangerous because if you had asked me before I had a stroke, Michael, if you were having a stroke, do you think you'd know? I would say, absolutely, I would know from having a stroke. I felt no discomfort. I felt no just pain. I just felt this weird sensation where I was having trouble coordinating. And I didn't have slurred speech, didn't have face drooping, none of those things. So I could have very easily just decided I'll sleep it off off for better tomorrow, which would have been catastrophic. We went to the emergency room. By the time we got there, it gotten worse. Now I couldn't. I was barely able to walk. My left side had gotten much worse. So ultimately, they diagnosed that seems like maybe you had a stroke, you know, based on what I was telling them and what they saw in the CT scan, which didn't show any blockage. And um, so they said, we're going to do an MRI, took me in for an MRI. And the MRI showed that I had had a stroke. And by that time, couldn't walk, couldn't stand anymore. And uh, doctors said, Leah, you suffered a stroke. And um, it was it was devastating because at that point I'm laying there. I can't walk. I can't stand. And so the first question I asked, of course, was, you know, well, what's my prognosis? Am I going to be able to walk again? And and there's a team of doctors there and they said, look, you know, that's the right question. As far as answers, it all depends on time. You just never know. Some people make a full recovery. Some people don't. Some people make a partial recovery. Some people it takes longer. You have a better chance than anyone else. You know, I mean, they were very encouraging and. 
But we're very honest that, you know, only time will tell. So how long to get from that position to where you kind of like? Record time, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 19 points. You know, um, a month later, I was back to being able to walk. I mean, I... One of the things that helped me most is keeping myself in very good shape. So I'm really strong on my right side, even though my left side then at that point, you know, I don't have much use of it. But being able to rely on my right side, you know, helped me a lot. So a month later, I was able to walk fairly decent. You know, six weeks later, with the naked eye, you wouldn't be able to tell. Mm -hmm. But I was still, you know, not quite back and not right. My balance and coordination was still not there. So I continued to rehab and um, I was back running about two months later, running very poorly, but able to run. I'd say back to exactly where I was before, as much as I could possibly be six months later. Okay, pretty good. Yeah. So how, how fast could you do 400 today? Well, the way that I look at it, is it would be how much slower would I be today than I was? And I don't really want to know that. No. I have no interest in knowing how much slower I am now than I was when I was at my fastest. But just a little <laughs> I mean, could I beat you in the 400? It's possible. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> I mean, in terms of crossing the finish line, yeah, you would, because I have no interest in actually going that far, so I wouldn't <laughs> get there. And listen, how hard was it to leave the sport? To stop being, I know you're still in the sport, but how hard was it to stop? I was very fortunate. Um, it was easy for me because I was ready. I was ready to move on to the next phase of my life. I was really fortunate that I did all of the things that I wanted to do in the sport. So when I left, I was still ranked number one in the world. Could have kept going, kept winning, but I was ready to move on. And and I wanted to finish on top. I made that commitment to myself when I um, when I first started in the sport. As a 200, 400-meter sprinter, I ended up in a 100-meter race in Stockholm one year. And this was at the beginning of my career. And Calvin Smith, who had been the world record holder in the 100 meters at one point, American, he was my idol. I loved Calvin Smith. Hated Carl Lewis, loved Calvin. So he, I was always a Calvin Smith fan. And why, I, Just on that, why did you hate Carl Lewis? Uh, it's a long story. Just I, It was something about him that I never liked. And then once I started competing against him, and I was sort of the next you know, after him, he never wanted to give up the, give up the reins. You know, he wanted to continue to be the king. So he tried a lot of stuff to try to just kind of, you know, isn't destroy that, isn't me. Isn't that you know? okay? Isn't that normal in sport? You know, no, you know, you don't, don't try to destroy someone else. Just go out there and compete. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I retired when I did. I didn't want to be running against people that I felt like, you know, hey, you know what? I think I'm past my prime and I don't want those, those, those mm-hmm. people beating me. Mm-hmm. So on this Calvin Smith thing, that's what happened. It's like, I'm in a race with Calvin Smith, my idol, and I beat him. I was like, I have no business even being in a race with this guy. And it's not even my race, 100 meters. He's past his prime. I was like, and I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen to me. So I retired after Sydney and felt like there's nothing else for me to do. I've broken all of the world records, won the gold medals, and I was always motivated by my goals. And I felt like I I don't have any more goals and now it's going to start to go downhill and how did you feel when the records went bolt took the 200 yeah and so wade van niekirk yeah took my 400 so most people would think that you'd be disappointed and i wasn't i was eight years into retirement when bolt broke my 200 meter world record i had moved on proud of the things that i was doing then and still proud of the fact that i broke the world record and that was what i was always proud of the fact that I had broken the world records and all of the work that it took, I chased both records for years. So I was proud of that. Not that I just was able to hold on to it. So that eight years, you know, between the time that I retired and, and Bolt 
broke my world record. Not one time did I ever introduce myself to anyone as the world record holder. That was not my identity. Mm. I have some friends who are world record holders and that's their identity. And if their record's ever broken, it's going to be a problem for them. Right. And that wasn't me. So, and, and when Wade broke it, same thing, you know, and, and I guess probably part of it too is I like both of those guys, mm. you know, if it was somebody I didn't like that broke my record, it may yeah. not be, yeah. And how much do you enjoy the broadcast stuff you do? I love it. I love it. It's, you know, I've been, been with BBC now for 20 years. Yeah. And um, I love it. I love the sport. I love trying to help viewers understand what they're seeing. Try to explain things that, you know, they may not otherwise have thought about as they sort of watch the, the race and um, help them to enjoy the experience better. Now, one of our most regular listeners is, the, is Brendan Foster. Hmm. sends me messages every week, gives me a little analysis of uh, of what he thinks of the podcast. So how much do you miss Brendan now that he's retired? Yeah, I miss him. So when I first started, Brendan was there and and we were always, we're, we're pretty tight. And he gave me a lot of advice when I first started and was always very, very supportive. And um, he's been supportive and helped me a lot with my business as well. So Brendan, Brendan is great. He's phenomenal. Well, Michael, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thoroughly enjoyed it. You're going to find me a tree of the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. I will. You I will. Me? I will. I will. Not today. Any day. No, I'm. I'm heading back. Back home tomorrow. We got some good trees in Malibu. Yeah. And and when you say you're heading back, given you've talked about the kind of political and social environment at the moment, does that fill you with dread? No. You know. I mean, still hopeful. Look, still hopeful. And look, let's. I, I. I have to say that. You know, there's a lot of good things happening too. Well, it's pretty bad, and sometimes you have to go through a lot of bad, but I'm thankful that we're going through what we are now because I think it's necessary. And knowing once you see it, you can't unsee it. And what we know now, yeah, we were not in as good a place as we thought we were, and we're working to get there now, and eventually we will get there. And um, so it's going to take a little pain. So you think the right side will win the war? Yeah, I mean, look, the numbers are on our side. Most Americans, and I think most people around the world, are on the side of fairness and equality. And that's what they want. Thank you very much. Absolutely. 